Good day and welcome back to the podcast. Today it's Thursday, 18th of July 1946. Top news in Sydney, Australia today. There was a gunman on the loose in the city. Armed police were searching St Mary's Cathedral for an escaped gunman. He escaped from the appeals court cell while he was waiting to appear and was still at large last night. Schoolchildren are going to be given an additional holiday on August the 1st. In local elections, every communist official of the Sydney branch of the Waterside Workers' Federation was defeated at the annual ballot. Meat rationing may be lifted at the end of this year. There is some discussion that the introduction of a 40-hour working week would result in little, if any, loss of production. And in good news for Australian girls who fell in love with US servicemen during the war years, the transport of Australian fiancés of US servicemen will begin on August 21st, when about 330 will leave on the Marine Falcon destined for the west coast of the USA. And the city forecast for Sydney today, fine, a cool day, cold night, moderate westerly to southwesterly winds and slight seas. But of course I don't need to remind listeners that Betty is at the far end of the world from Sydney, Australia. It's not cool, it's a hot summer in Nanchang. This is Betty Souter, Unra Regional Office, Nanchang, Changxi, China, 18 July 1946. Greetings. Maybe it is time again for me to give you a few little tales of this place called China. The River Khan is rising fast, and also is the Yangtze. And the combination of the two factors is causing as much concern here in Nanchang. Nanchang is situated about 120 miles up the Khan River from where that river runs into the Yangtze. The Khan is filled from the mountains many miles away and the recent rains have caused Khan to reach the highest level it has experienced for about 23 years. This in itself we are prepared for because the River Conservancy Bureau of Changxi has been busily engaged on strengthening the river embankments, and their efforts are much to be commended. But now, the Yangtze is in flood also. Record flood, and the flood waters are backing up to the tributaries of which the Khan is one. We can see the particular red-coloured mud peculiar to the Yangtze here in the Khan at Nanchang. At Nanchang, the flooding Khan and Yangtze meet, and there seems to be no getaway for the waters, other than across the embankments to the paddy fields. This will spell disaster for the farmers. July is the month of the rice harvest, and the work is about to commence. This is the first harvest since the peace came, and the country hangs upon these crops for a renewal of normal life and satisfaction of long-endured hunger. Prospects are good. It should be a bumper harvest. The farmers have sweated and laboured to make it a productive season. Imagine now their fears of the flood. Surely this cannot happen. Even we, foreigners, look towards the river every hour 
and lift a silent prayer. There is no rain here. While the rain-filled rivers threaten the town, we are sweltering in the heat of early summer. But we are anxious, both with and for these people. I do so hope the banks will hold and that the rivers will fall. I have mentioned this because my letter this time may reflect a little anxiety which I want you to realise is not personal. There is, of course, the secondary result of a possible flood, namely the result to UNRWA hostel and personnel. We are situated right on the bank of the Khan and well within the city limits. A flood would cover us very early in the piece. Now that I have written these few lines, I begin to think less of the farmers and more of Betty Mavis. Gosh, yes. I hadn't thought about it that way. But never fear. There is always a solution to every problem. If I break off suddenly, you will know that I have made off for the rooftop or the highest tree. Yesterday, I had a letter from a New Zealand girl in Woohoo, which, you will remember, I visited last month on my way to Nanking and Xinjiang. Amongst other things, she mentioned that the old boy has made a remarkable recovery and has been discharged complete with coffin, which reminds me of a story. I was quartered at the home of the superintendent of the General Hospital, Methodist Mission, while I was staying in Woohoo. One evening at dusk, there was a commotion at the gate of the hospital where patients had checked in. I, having nothing to do, went to investigate. Behold, an old, thin, dirty man stretched out in a coffin, and his chattering relatives were asking for his admission to hospital. Even to me, it seemed that they had brought him to the wrong place. A great deal of chatter, and eventually I got one of the English-speaking nurses to tell me the tale. It appears that the Chinese set great store on having a burial in a good-looking coffin. When this old fellow appeared to his people only to have a few hours to live, they pooled their money and bought him a nice coffin and placed him therein to die. They thought that he had breathed his last and began to slide on the lid. They do not use nails or screws in China. Too scarce and expensive. Reaction within the coffin. He seemed to have taken a turn for the better. Since he now appeared as if he were going to live, they thought he'd better go to hospital. He insisted that the coffin go with him. After all, it was his coffin, and he would have to die sometime. And that was the stage at which I became one of the interested onlookers. Well, he was admitted to the hospital and carried up to his ward in the coffin. Sister decided that first and foremost, he must have a bath. The orderlies, as usual, then took over. After a while, Sister thought she'd better look in to see if he was all right. She went along to the bathroom and poked her head around the door. And behold, the old boy sitting up in the tub, washing himself. And now, after a few weeks in hospital, with his coffin at the end of the room, just in case, he's apparently made a complete recovery and has been discharged taking with him his coffin, to live a few years longer, but prepared now to meet the inevitable. China. Typical China. A strange country, a strange people. While thinking about Wu Hu, I chuckled once again at two very small children, a little girl of about three and a little boy of about six, 
were walking along a muddy road beside a slimy green pond in which the hefty frogs were sheltering for the day under the great flat lotus leaves. There are many such ponds, all green and slimy, many frogs, all very hefty, and many lotus plants, enormous leaves, and delicate pink flowers. The two children were just as they were born, no clothes whatsoever, not even the water charm necklet that so many of them wear. No usual wide straw hat, because it had been raining, and the sky was still cloudy. All of a sudden it started to rain again. The little boy ducked over to the pond, broke off a large leaf, dashed back to his little girlfriend, and continued to patter along the road under the shelter of the lotus leaf. I have not laughed so much for a very long time, and the two little kids, so serious, making their way along that road, naked but sheltering under the big green leaf. We have a humorist here in our midst at Unra House. He is unconscious of the amusement he causes us all, but laughs with the rest of us and thinks life is a huge joke. He's from the States, southern part. is very large, about 18 or 19 stone, I would say, 53 years old, but does not look it, and his name is Jasper R. Marlowe. He prefers to be called J.R. He has a deep, asthmatic sigh, which attaches itself to every sentence that he utters, his utterances being in a long, tired drawl ending up in his chest. We always have to guess the last few words, which are inevitably lost in the sigh. We'll be very happy to demonstrate on my return. He has more luggage than all the rest of us put together, and, to our horror, had 95 pieces of washing one week in his weekly laundry list. He has about six of everything, whether it be typewriter ribbons, he does not type, or gardening gloves, he does not garden either. Anything that anyone wants can usually be obtained from J.R., and he is overwhelmingly generous. Sully tore his only remaining pair of long pants. J.R. obliged, said he had eight pairs extra, and was only too happy, etc., etc. I have to say, etc., because, as usual, no one heard the last words. J.R. figures that he is putting on too much weight, so he has started to cut the lawn in the mornings. The sweat rolls off him at the first stroke of the scythe, but he manfully keeps on with the show. His dress is a knockout. He wears chubby white drill shorts, showing his fat pink knees to perfection, and his underpants, otherwise called wear, invariably hang down for another three inches at least. Then he has an officer's peak cap and tall gumboots. You have never seen anything like it. To continue with the reducing exercises, J.R. decided to take a few bicycle rides. Why he chose this weather to reduce, the Lord only knows. Well, he has had a few rides here and there, but a few days ago he had to give it away a little. He set off in great style from the house and said he would have a little run downtown, etc., etc., lost the rest, and looked quite fresh and full of pep as he wheeled his way out under the trees. Half an hour later, in came a rickshaw, with a very perspiry J.R. ensconced therein, the bicycle straddled across his knees. Yes, he is a scream. 
He went over to dinner at the hotel the other evening. We were having Chinese chow at the hostel, and as he had had an attack of the GIs, of which he insisted on telling us rather frequently, progress reports, he decided to have a Western meal in town. He left by rickshaw. He wore a pair of khaki shorts, a white soft shirt with wide and startling black and yellow bow tie, a wide brim felt hat, brown, brown socks and shoes, a gold handled cane and his special cool drawing pipe with a stem of 13 inches. That is our J.R. Unfortunately, he's returning to Shanghai very soon. He cannot do the job they sent him here to do, and we have to return him. It is a pity because he is such good company. However, accounts are pretty important and they must be done properly. One afternoon last week, I went out of town about 15 Lee to watch some pile driving on a new bridge. There is an emergency highway team operating here at present, working on the Changsha Nanchang Highway and I welcomed the opportunity of seeing something of the work in progress. Marge and I went out with Hank in a truck, a hot and dusty ride, but not as bumpy as usual, and eventually we came to the locus quo. The Unra road teams do fast repair work to open up the country again, the permanent structures being left till a time when distribution needs are not so great. The bridge we inspected is only a small one, about 20 feet long, and is on a detour from the place where the reconstructed permanent bridge will eventually be built. Mostly, the driving of the piles is done manually, but there was a variation in this case, trust the Aussies. An Australian engineer in this party, Randolph Bedford, rough, noisy and capable, cadged a telephone truck and he and Hank, capable, but certainly not rough and noisy, together rigged up a pile driver using cables and winches from the truck. They had a Chinese foreman and about 30 coolies on the job and, believe me, they were doing a pretty good job of work. The bridge was completed in two days and the truck, coolies and pile driver were then moved on to the next one. In the copy of this letter which goes to one or other of the family, there will be a set of snaps showing the repair of bridges in China. It looks slow, but believe me, great progress is being made. Naturally, the hard labour is done by coolies, unless it is too difficult to explain what is required of them, but the UNRWA teams have to be on the spot all the time to supervise both work and workers. We spent the whole of the afternoon out in the heat and dust, since it was Hank's turn to be on, at least until Rudy came blustering along. Helpful in the latter hours, we drank tea in the dirty little roadside tea shop. The shop was just like a picnic shelter shed, with roof of matting and two sides also of matting. Under the roof lived several families, by the look of things. At the back of the open square, and also their animals, several muddy pigs, diseased-looking chickens, and a mangy dog. The kids were none too clean, but happy little souls. Mom, as Rudy called her, made us tea. 
the water being boiled on the open charcoal fireplace. The system of tea making here is rather different. Into a bowl, the shape and size of a porridge bowl, they pour about three teaspoons of green tea, not with teaspoon of course, but with fingers, and then they pour on the boiling water. That tea lasts you all afternoon, and they keep pouring on the water for refills. System of drinking is to lift the bowl in both hands and to suck noisily. I can enjoy my tea, but it is not quite the same as boiling the billy. Guess that is all for now. I hope you can gather a little of the atmosphere of China from my letters. I would not wish on you the full atmosphere, the dirt and the smells, but they all add up to an experience, and how I will love the clean, fresh air of Australia once the experience is over. P.S. I have had many interruptions while typing this letter. Now I have read it through, I can see the resultant disjointedness. Please overlook same. Bet. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry. The voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorn. And the featured tune from this episode, which made it to number 59 on the 1946 popular music chart, Hey Barbary Bop by Lionel Hampton and his orchestra.
the mountain, mad as I can be, looking for that cat that stole my baby from me, singing, hey, my baby. 